Tasmania is the full stop at the bottom of the world, and we live on an island of stories. For years now, the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival has celebrated our great thinkers, writers and readers, and now we're excited to share these insights globally. I'm Lyndon Rigol, and throughout this series, my colleague Annie Warburton and I will be talking to writers, playwrights, comedians, poets, editors, and all of those who share a love of the written word, right here on the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival podcast. Erin Hortle grew up at Clifton Beach in southern Tasmania, which might explain her affinity for the ocean. Erin's debut novel, The Octopus and I, is utterly steeped in the feel, the sights and the sounds of the sea. And it's peopled by the creatures, human and animal, that live in or by the sea. In this case, it's the small coastal community of Eagle Hawk Neck, a narrow strip of land that separates the Forestier and Tasman peninsulas. The central character, Lucy, lives there with her abalone diving boyfriend, Jem. Following breast cancer, she's had a double mastectomy, which, needless to say, has affected her feminine self-image. She gets silicon implants, which Jem, a supportive snag type, rather likes, and they seem to have a physically and emotionally satisfying relationship. She befriends two older women who catch and pickle octopus, and she becomes interested in the life cycle and habits of this strange creature. Then a nasty road mishap causes Lucy further physical injury, but also leads to further fascination with the octopus, and through the octopus to more profound questioning of femininity, femaleness, motherhood, maternal sacrifice, sex, love and death. The whole shebang. Erin Hortle, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Thank Annie. Thank you for coming in. Did you grow up a water baby? Yes, 100%. I don't even remember learning how to swim and I barely even remember learning how to surf. It was all just <laughs> a part of life. And is Clifton Beach War, the Clifton Beach of your childhood, sat like the eagle hawk neck of your novel? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I suppose parts of it. I think the proximity to the beach and the constant presence of the beach um, in the novel for, for the, the characters of the novel is definitely reminiscent of um, my childhood growing up. The beach was just over the sand dunes and so it was always there, always accessible, always a place that you could go for whatever you needed, whether it was, you know, because you wanted to immerse yourself in the water or have a walk or solace. It was a place of um, fun and a place of sort of introspection as well. There's something or is there something distinctively Tasmanian and coastal about both um, Eagle Hawk Neck and Clifton Beach, do you think? I think so, simply because of the specificity of Tasmanian weather and the Tasmanian seasons. Um, although, I, you know, Victoria isn't necessarily so different. Um, but I think there is something about a Tasmanian's relationship with the coast, which is not the same um, image or the same relationship that you have in that mainstream Australian idea of um, the beach and Australian identity. I think for us down here, the beach is in summer that place of joy, but it's also a place of, um, you know, dark colours and storms and bitingly cold winds. Um, I think we, we, live our, our, we live out our relationship with the beach by the seasons which I think is, is quite particular to Tasmania. Yes. I used to visit cousins on Bruni Island uh, when I was a kid, and your book just powerfully brought back those memories, um, uh, which were so much more 
I suppose, redolent of a particular place than, say, remembering beach holidays in, in Victoria. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the human creatures of your book uh, first. Now, like Lucy, you're Tasmanian, you're outdoorsy, athletic, fond of aquatic pursuits. What are the differences between the two of you? Wow, oh, there's a few fundamental differences. One of the key differences is actually in her relationship with, um, with the ocean. Um, as a surfer, my relationship with the ocean is very much structured around the surf and um, finding good waves. And it, I feel very much because I have that connection with surfing, my connection with the beach isn't necessarily something that I forge through relationships with others. It's something that I feel like I, I have sort of on my own with the ocean. Um, whereas Lucy, um, so she's not actually Tasmanian, she moves to Tasmania um, at the beginning of the book. Sorry to pick you up on that, Annie. Um, but she very much, when she moves down, she's, she's trying to figure out what yes. her relationship with the peninsula is. And she forges that relationship through the connections that she has with other humans. Um, so particularly initially, it's through her relationship with her partner, Jam. Um, and I felt like at one point I contemplated making Lucy a surfer because I think there's an underrepresentation of female surfers in Australian literature. But then I realised that it would actually compromise the way in which she seeks out connections um, with others and the, the way in which she feels connected with the Tasman Peninsula as a place. And so I realised she couldn't actually be a surfer. Um, and I think that's a really fundamental difference. Now, like Lucy too, you have grappled with debilitating illness, in your case, Ross River virus. Mm. Now, we'll, we'll talk about um, Lucy and the breast cancer and the double mastectomy um, shortly, but uh, what was the effect of acquiring this virus on you? Well, um, I acquired that virus when I was quite young, so um, when I was 12, and I was quite unwell off and on up until sort of the age of um, 21 or 22. And I think for me that, that illness, I'd have periods sort of, you know, between a month and eight months to a year of being really, really unwell. And then I'd have periods of being healthy. And I realised, um, you know, I mean, that fundamentally changes your relationship with your body and your relationship with the idea of health and what you'll take for granted or not. Um, and because I would have those periods of deep um, yeah, of feeling deeply unhealthy, of just complete fatigue and exhaustion and pain and nausea. When I would feel good, I would throw myself into living. And for me, as we mentioned, I grew up at the beach. For me, throwing myself into living just meant spending as much time, you know, on the water as I could. Um, and I think, so I kind of associate that idea of, of health with, with immersion actually, with immersing yourself in life as thoroughly as you can with being outside and, and in the elements. Why did you choose for Lucy this particular illness? Um, it was a conversation I had with someone and an offhand comment they made that I found um, bizarre, possibly because I'd never thought of it, but also because of um, their attitude. So it was, I, I was at a party and I was talking to, so I was about 21 or 22 at the time. And I was talking to someone who, um, who mentioned that their mother had had breast cancer and then it had a, um, had breast reconstructive surgery afterwards. 
And I sort of went, oh, you know, that, that must have been, you know, really hard. Or... But they responded to me by saying, actually, it turned out to be a really good thing in the end because it meant that she could get an even better pair of breasts afterwards. <laughs> um, and I just couldn't stop thinking about that idea of, like, that trauma was okay because then she could be a better version of femininity or she could remake her body into this slightly more idealised and perhaps sexualised feminine type. And it made me think about the choices that women face when they're in that situation. So when they go through that period of illness and that bodily trauma of having parts of their body perhaps cut off, um, the, the decision you then make, how do you make that within... I guess within a social structure where, where breasts are coded as sexualized and as feminine, how, how do you make that in a way that perhaps is, is outside that gendered dynamic or, or how do you make it in a way that doesn't, how do you make that decision in, in a manner that doesn't mean that you're necessarily subscribing to idealized types of beauty? Um, and, and can we ever actually escape that way of thinking about our bodies? Um, and I don't, I, th I think it's a really hard Decision. I don't know if there's necessarily an answer to that, but I just thought I wanted to write a character who made these sorts of decisions and who was explicitly feminist. So who made these decisions and then thought about their body afterwards in a whole range of complex ways and in ways where she couldn't necessarily find an answer. Well, now Lucy's reaction to her new situation uh, is affected by her relationship with Jem and also by her encounter with... Uh, an octopus. <laughs> so I suppose I said we'd start with the human creature. So, yep. so with Jem, now he, he seems a nice fellow. He's an ab diver. He's a snag. He's very supportive of Lucy and what she's had to go through. Um, now, he's drawn in opposition to some of the local fishermen and some of the other local men. Uh, he's obviously got a, a stronger sense of environmental awareness than they have. What role does he play uh, in, in your story? Uh, he, plays, he plays a whole range of different roles. I suppose, just to carry on with, with that discussion of Lucy's breasts, um, I was also thinking about that idea of if, if you are in a sexual relationship with someone or an emotional relationship with someone um, in that way, that the decisions you make about your gendered body or your sexed body will inevitably affect them because they do actually have an intimate relationship with your body. And so I was really curious to think about how, um, you know, the way in which Lucy is, or her relationship with her body is sort of playing out in her mind, how that is affected or not by the ways in which other people interact with her body. And of course, the person who's interacting with her body most is, is her partner. So that was the first way um, that, that Jem sort of affects the story. The other way in which he plays out is um, to think through that, to think through a particular type of Tasmanian masculinity, I suppose. So Jem is um, on the one hand a character who makes his living by diving for abalone. He loves fishing. He loves sort of being a part of that Tasmanian coastal community and sort of performing those particular types of masculine roles. He's also a surfer. Um, but he's also someone who's deeply troubled by what's happening environmentally in the world. And so in that sense, sort of tapping into that Tasmanian green politics 
um, type, yeah, the Tasmanian green type. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people in coastal communities who carry those two kind of contradictions where they see Tasmania as a place where they can do these things and participate in these patterns of behaviour, but they're really alarmed at the idea that other people are plundering the coast or the world for gain. Um, and I think there's a particular type of parochialism there that I think Jem displays. And I don't necessarily condemn Jem for that hypocrisy or parochialism. I think, I think it's really valid, but I think it's a, a really interesting, that, that tension between um, his, what he sees himself as entitled to and what he criticises others for. Um, I think that tension is, is really interesting kind of tension in, in Tasmanian culture to think through. Well, it's, it's interesting that he's actually very supportive of her um, when it comes to the fact that she's undergone this double mastectomy. He, I suppose, hopes that having the, the silicon implants, I mean, he even finds it quite sexy, and yet it's still problematic for her. Why? I think, well, there's a range of different reasons. Um, and I think it's in large part because she feels like the breasts, the, the new breasts have covered up what she's been through. And there's this idea that now, now there's these new markers of femininity that are covering that trauma. There's this expectation that things will go on um, and perhaps things will go on even better. But for her, that doesn't actually um, allow her to delve into or think through the complexity of, of this sort of disruption in her sense of self, I suppose. The breasts sort of cover, up, cover that up and stop her actually really being able to delve into what, how her identity was disrupted by the trauma of the illness. Um, and, and so then Jem's um, love of the breasts, perhaps, or his, his support, she feels like it's, it's sort of washing over or clouding that capacity for her to actually delve into the nuances of, of what's happened to her. And at this point in the story, I suppose we must introduce the octopus because uh, it's, it's a fascinating aspect of the story, really, how this strange creature comes to affect and change Lucy's self-image. Why octopus? Well, it was the story of the octopuses. So I essentially started this novel with two key ideas. The first was um, th this idea of a woman who has been through um, breast cancer and has reconstructed her body. I thought, that's a character I want to write. I'm really curious to see how she comes to terms with her sense of self. Um, completely separate to that, I heard about the octopuses at Eagle Hawk Neck and there's this really fascinating localised phenomenon down there where, so um, for people who aren't familiar with the area, Eagle Hawk Neck is um, an isthmus that connects the Tasman Peninsula to the Forestier Peninsula. Um, and it's, you know, maybe 50 to 100 metres wide, probably not quite 100 metres. Um, and on the bay side of the neck, um, these particular type of female octopus will sort of congregate um, and they'll be heavily pregnant with, with, you know, full of eggs. And there's no, because that bay is fringed by mudflats, there's no um, appropriate habitat for them to extrude their eggs because what octopuses do when they're pregnant is they extrude their eggs and they hang them up um, in strings in sea caves and then they jet water onto them. Um, keeping them clean and then after a period of time the eggs hatch and the female octopus dies 
um, because she hasn't eaten or looked after herself. It's the end of her, her life cycle. Um, there's no habitat for these octopuses in um, Eagle Hawk Bay. And sometimes when there's a really big swell on the ocean side of the neck, so over on the Pirates Bay side, they'll actually emerge out of the water and crawl across the isthmus to get to that open ocean to find habitat um, for them to lay their eggs. Um, and, uh, we, and it's really appropriate habitat there, there's sea caves, um, vast strings of sea caves. And I just thought it was the most fascinating story. Um, just this image of these octopus bodies sort of emerging out of the water and crawling across this isthmus, which has a highway running across it. And that potential for octopus roadkill just, just was, yeah, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's just, they're just so interesting. And then of course, once you start thinking about octopuses, you look into them and you discover all sorts of fascinating things about them. And so I just, I really wanted to tell their story. And then I kept thinking about this, the fact that they are so female. So they, you know, they're, I was at a conference, um, an, an octopus conference a couple of years ago, and a marine biologist referred to these particular octopuses as ripe. Like they're so heavily pregnant, um, you know, with their, their eggs really need to come out and they're ready to die. Um, and I just thought there's something just really fascinating about them on that sexed or gendered level. Um, the fact that they have this maternal drive to get out of the water and cross that isthmus. And then the fact that they give up their life for their youngs, that, that sacrificial element, it's so kind of poignant. And I thought, what would happen if I brought that character who's grappling with her own gender and sense of self into contact with these octopuses and she learns about that extraordinary journey of maternal sacrifice, what would, what would happen? And, and that was when I started writing. Well, at one point, something dreadful happens on that yes. very isthmus, doesn't it? Now, it, Lucy knows a story, and you've heard it too. <laughs> I perhaps should put that the other way around. <laughs> Uh, the idea that perhaps the octopuses in that area evolved that way, that once uh, the Tasman Peninsula was actually a separate island, mm -hmm. and that accounts for that behaviour. That does seem likely, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, that is kind of one of the theories they put out there because no one's quite sure why these octopuses behave in that way. It's not normal octopus behaviour. Um, and so one of the theories is that it used to be a narrows that they could swim through, um, and that, you know, and that's somehow something that these octopuses now know. The really interesting thing about that, though, is that the, octop the mother octopus actually dies before the egg, oh, just as the eggs hatch. And so an octopus actually doesn't ever learn any knowledge from its mother or from another generation of octopuses. And so if, if that's the case, it's not like it's something that's this knowledge that's passed down that however many thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago that they could swim through. It's something that is actually written into the fibre of these octopuses. It's something potentially epigenetic, which is really fascinating. Now you got into another uh, aspect of octopus theory, didn't you? The idea, I think it's, um, is it Peter Godfrey Smith, the scuba diving philosopher who wrote Other Minds and the Deep Origins of Consciousness? Is he the one who came up with the idea that, uh, whereas we might see Homo sapiens at the apex of the vertebrates in terms of intelligence, that the octopuses uh, are on top of the pile of invertebrates. Yeah, so there's this um, really kind of, it's, uh, there's a whole range that's fascinating when you compare the evolutionary trajectory of um, octopuses from humans. 
basically, I can't, I can't remember how many hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, we actually had a common ancestor with octopuses. So um, it was an eyeless tube shaped creature. Apparently they've, they've found this particular, um, a fossil of this particular creature and its lineage split into um, vertebrates and invertebrates. And I mean, one could theorize that the human is the apex, um, the evolutionary apex of the vertebrates because we do have, um, you know, we've, we've conquered the world pretty thoroughly and we are relatively intelligent, although not all of us. And, you know, we could probably query if a little bit of that, the anthropocentrism of, um, of that assumption. But anyway, for, for argument's sake, we'll say we're the evolutionary apex. A lot of marine biologists have argued um, that the octopus is the evolutionary apex of the invertebrates because it is by far the most intelligent um, invertebrate out there. And there's been an extraordinary amount of research into um, octopus intelligence. It's, it's a really, really fascinating area to kind of delve into. Um, and so it's also kind of interesting to, to think through yeah, the human relationship with the octopus on that level, because there's something about us that is similar in that sense. And an and octopus intelligence, it's, it's similar to human intelligence in a range of ways. But because we are sort of the endpoints of these two lines or the current endpoints, we're also so vastly different um, to the point that the octopus, um, it was Martin Wells, who was a marine biologist, who um, described the octopus as the closest thing to an alien on Earth. And th that's something that sort of comes up again and again and again in writing on octopuses. But, and it's kind of true because they are, they are so vastly different to us and their intelligence is so vastly different. Mm. Martin Wells, he was the grandson, or mm. he's the grandson of H.G. Wells, yes. who wrote a short story in which um, octopuses in a certain seaside town in England start attacking humans mm. out on the sea because their own food supply has been depleted. Yeah. So they're, they're depicted as a threat, but, yeah. but from a sort of, um, with an ego understanding of it. Yeah, and the, um, the aliens in The War of the Worlds also are quite sort of octopus-like <laughs> um, as yeah. well, which is obviously another one of H.G. Wells' more famous novels. They are actually, they eat their own kind, don't they? Mm. And they can eat crayfishes. Yeah, and it's um, uh, when I was researching for um, for the octopus and I, I went on so many YouTube splurges and you know end up doing things like YouTubing octopus attacks crayfish and watching just endless videos <laughs> that people have taken. Um, it's just you can, oh, there's hours of entertainment there if, if you're interested in octopuses. <laughs> well, uh, there comes a point in your story, as I said, where uh, Lucy and the octopus come into contact in the sea. Uh, and she, in chasing it, I suppose, she has this another traffic, well, a traffic accident on the highway along the isthmus. But by that time, she has already become a, a catcher and pickler and presumably eater of octopuses. So on the one hand, she's got this quite, you know, she's behaving like a human predator. And on the other hand, she's fascinated with the idea of octopus as female and as uh, maternal sacrifice. Mm. So how does she reconcile that? She goes through that particular moment, I suppose, is when she's moving through a process of, of shifting her thinking around octopuses as, as she realises that there's something in them and something in the, the story of these particular octopuses that she, she's fascinated by and she somehow 
feels like it somehow resonates with her sense of self in a way that she can't quite pin down. Um, so for her, and I, I, you know, this is often the case with human relationships with animals. So initially um, she's drawn to the octopuses because um, of this idea that they could be food. She sees these two older women catching them to pickle them and she sees it as this incredibly, um, and she's, she's aware of the fact she's romanticising it even as she watches it, but she sees it as this incredible moment of, or this, this culture of women doing things on the land or in the water that she wants to become a part of that feminine culture. Um, and so initially the octopuses sort of symbolise that, but then as she learns more about them and feels like she comes to understand them, the idea of them becoming food is something that becomes quite abhorrent to her. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's true often of humans with animals. The more we get to know an animal, the less likely we are to eat it often, not always, but, but for Lucy, that was definitely the case with, with the octopus. With the octopus, yes, which is a, a creature much more alien to her than, say, um, uh, the baby mutton birds. Mm. She, I mean, she goes on a mutton birding expedition mm. with these two women. And she, you know, she's prepared to reach into the bow and grab out these tiny, warm, fluffy creatures mm. <laughs> and kill them. <laughs> so, well, does she come to any final conclusion about killing animals? No, I've, I wouldn't say she comes to a final conclusion about killing animals. The thing I'd say about the mutton birds is that what Lucy saw that first night when she sees, so it's Flo and Poppy catching those octopuses, she sees people who she thinks are living in this embodied, immersive way in the world and in the ecosystem is how she describes it. And after being through that period of illness where she felt like she was on the cusp of death and there was a deathliness to her body, um, which then she tries to you know, rectify by having breast reconstructive surgery, but she feels like there's a deathliness to the silicon implants. After all of that, she sees, this, sees these women in this picture of what, what she describes as is something that's full of life. And she thinks, I want to become a part of that. And so she, she befriends them and she becomes a part of it. But then she realises actually she can't be a part of that if, if the result of it is octopus death. So she's trying to find other ways um, in which she can recreate that immersive experience yeah. that doesn't cost the life of the octopus. So, and that's sort of when the mutton birds come into it. And she's uneasy about the mutton birds and but she sort of says it served its purpose that she had that experience that she'd been yearning for and she felt like she'd reconnected with life through it but she's then done with it but I wouldn't say she necessarily figures out her ethics around animals because I think that's something that the novel itself doesn't necessarily come up with clear-cut answers around ethics. No because uh, Jem I mean he disapproves of the mutton birding doesn't he yeah. but he dives for abalone, yeah. he likes fishing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's the thing around food, um, perhaps or around animal rights, everyone has a cutoff point and everyone finds, and, and I would say, yeah, humans across, across the board find places where they're comfortable at stopping. And within this novel, different people have different places where they'll stop or not. And so for Jam, he, there's a comment in there where he says, you know, I think it's Lucy that says maybe it's that thing with faces. Maybe abalone are okay to kill because they don't have faces. Like maybe that's a cutoff point for some people. Mm. For others, it's fish. For others, it's all animals. Mm. For vegans, it's quite hard line. But within this novel, I just I wanted to explore the middle ground. 
You give the octopus quite a voice in your story. Uh, there are a few passages uh, ostensibly uh, voiced by the octopus, the creature itself, all mm. very sort of sensory and as you would expect. But the octopuses aren't the only creatures given a voice. Um, you give a voice to a seal, the seals being drawn to the fish enclosures there and leading to conflict with local fishermen and so on, to the baby mutton birds. Um, why are you doing that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I, I wrote the first third of the novel from Lucy's perspective. And I got to um, the moment, that, so a scene when the octopus crosses the road. Um, and I realised that while I'd set out to tell that particular octopus's story, actually I'd told Lucy's story, which was fine. But I felt like I hadn't quite done the story of the octopus justice because the only time in which it appeared in the narrative was when its life and its path directly intersected with the human character, so with Lucy. And actually it was always being made sense of through um, Lucy's thoughts about herself or her obsessing over her own body. And so I felt like I hadn't quite done the octopus justice. So I thought, I set myself the challenge. I thought I, I, I really want to tell the octopus a story. Um, and I thought, I've, actually, I'd, I'd really quite like to tell it from the octopus's perspective. I'd like to have a go at experimenting with language to see if I could find a way to do that. So that, that kind of set up my idea there. And then I spent quite some time trying to figure out how to do that because, you know, as we've said, octopuses are incredibly unique animals. Um, and, and how does one narrate from an octopus's perspective without it being somehow twee or childish? Um, and that, that felt like an extraordinary challenge. So what I did was I um, researched octopuses really extensively. I learned a lot about um, their sensory experience of the world, um, psychobiology of the octopus, and also um, I thought a lot about how I might manipulate grammar and language so that I could get my sentences to potentially roll and flow and then stop and start in a way that might mimic how an octopus moves. So th that, that sort of became my goal there. Um, then as I kept writing the novel and other animals popped up in it, I thought I actually I wanted to tell their story too because like the octopus, their lives are significantly bigger and broader than the moment in which they, their paths intersect with the human character's paths. And so it sort of became, I suppose, a way that I was thinking about writing about place. So I was thinking about writing about the Tasman Peninsula, the specific weather patterns, the types of people that live down there or perhaps live in coastal Tasmania. And then I realised actually we're writing about place. Place isn't only human. It's not only human centric. And so how might I try to more broadly show how populated and how lived in um, a place like the peninsula is? And seals and mountain birds, I mean, they're, for me, they're every, you know, they're so iconic of the Tasmanian coast and of the seasons and they were just so present in the story. I felt like I couldn't not write about them as well. And of course you, you use them to expand on the, the, the central theme of the story, which I suppose is, is sex, love, reproduction, biology. The female yeah. octopuses enact the most oppressive of female destiny, don't they? Yes. Sacrificing themselves for yeah. their children. Yes. Um, then the male, the seals rather, the seals live in a, 
an oppressive patriarchy where yep. only the strongest male can hope to mate and reproduce. Mm. Um, now, you, the seal, the individual to whom you give a voice, he has a kind of friends with benefits relationship <laughs> with a female seal. <laughs> and he actually stops and wonders, well, perhaps I don't care if I don't get to reproduce. Perhaps it's better off if I just get to uh, remain a beta male all my life, swim around gorging all day, not have to fight off rivals and get myself hurt, uh, which is the price that the alpha males pay to get their genes into the next generation. So um, is, what's happening here? Is he the sort of the seal equivalent of, of Jem? Is he a snag seal? Oh, um, I, I mean, look, it, meaning is open to interpretation. Um, I certainly didn't write him with that in mind. I suppose I was, so I was thinking through seal social dynamics and hierarchies and I just started thinking about this idea that it's somehow seen as natural that all males of the species would want to become an alpha male. And, you know, there's so many different species that have that kind of setup where the males will all fight and then one or two will win, say, with, with seals, they're called a harem of females. Um, you know, different species have, have different terminology there. But I thought, would every single male actually desire that? Like, it, and, and I sort of rolled from there because it strikes me as an extraordinary um, amount of work. <laughs> and, and also a moment of sacrifice and putting your body on the line in those ways. And, um, you know, with, with the seal dynamic, if, if one doesn't fight to be an alpha male, so basically what happens is an alpha male will eat all year, bulk up to get as big as he can, fight possibly to the death um, to find a patch of coast where he then displays his bulk um, and the female seals in groups cruise up and down the coast sort of checking out the different alpha males who've got their spot on the beach um, and then the, the harems will sort of go in and sort of essentially select their alpha male. But then for the rest of the season, he can't give up his spot because he runs the risk of losing his harem. So what, what actually happens is he just wastes away. He barely eats. Um, basically, all he does is fight and have sex for a period of time, which I don't know. I mean, maybe that is every seal's fantasy. But all these other males hang around they eat. Um, there's a fair bit of um, homosexuality. So, you know, they're still getting a fair bit of sex, but they also, you know, get to, I don't know, enjoy <laughs> the rest of the spoils of the coast as well. And I sort of thought, I wonder, like, I, I wonder what's happening there in terms of seal desire, if, mm. if every single seal wants that or not. They're more I mean, aware. We can never know. Yeah. Well, your, your central seal character is more aware. Well, he's, he's young as well. And he's just, he's not even at mm. an age where he could be an alpha and he's just observing it and thinking through the pros and cons of, of each, mm. each sort of masculine pathway, I suppose. Yes. And Jem is aware, you know, as a human male, uh, and he believes in, I think it's called the sociobiological theory of human sexuality, which is, you know, females are more choosy about their partners. Men are more sexually aggressive because they're driven to spread their seed everywhere. Um, Lucy admonishes him for ignoring female sex drive, but, but he's not doing that. He's saying he's different. Uh, are you, who do you agree with there? Or does it matter? I don't think it matters. I think they're just different positions that one can think through. I suppose, um, oh, you know, I, if I step back in and put my feminist hat on, I do perhaps agree with Lucy more. 
Um, but I actually think it's probably a false opposition and a ridiculous argument, I suppose. is It's an argument that, that provides space for us to think things through, but I think um, often reverts into kind of damaging and reductive thinking. And that's sort of the case um, with how Gem and Lucy use it. Yes, although she accepts completely that the octopus is acting according to its biological destiny, doesn't she? Yeah, but octopuses are interesting as well. When you, when you start looking into the reproduction habits of all different types of animals, it, it's really interesting to chart the, the, the different um, trajectories of, of each sex. So an octopus actually will only have sex once and then the female octopus will become pregnant. So that she then um, dies after the eggs hatch but an octopus male will only have sex once, maybe twice, and then he goes completely senile and forgets to eat and then dies. So, you know, there's sort of, um, it's not necessarily a better position to be a male or a female in that species. The octopuses that Lucy's coming into contact with are already pregnant. So there is no other path for them. And an octopus, they only live for about a year and it's at that end point of their life cycle. And that's because she's act, interacting with the specific octopuses in this bay. She's interacting with female octopuses at the end of their lives. So there's actually perhaps no space for her to question that trajectory of the gender, of the sex, yeah. Are you trying to say something here about uh, nature versus nurture and which is more influential in affecting human behaviour? No. Not, not particularly. I think, if anything, I'm trying to unsettle the idea that we can even draw that distinction. So I don't know, I, I don't know if nature versus nurture is a useful way to actually think through behaviour. I think there's always nature and there's always nurture and we're always the product of our natural body and our species and the societies and cultures in which we live. Um, and grow up and interact with others. So I, I think I'm actually trying to bring those together, I suppose. Yeah. What do you say generally about the right, if you like, of an author to uh, speak in voices which aren't their own? When animals become involved, which is what I did, I think I did wonder a little bit about this. And I think it comes down to a question of intention. Um, because obviously an octopus isn't going to write its own story. And it comes down to that question of, am I writing this story to um, exploit the octopus or to um, devalue its life, I suppose? And I, I don't feel like that was what drove me to write that story. So I, I do feel comfortable about writing from an animal's perspective in a way that I wouldn't feel comfortable about, say, writing from a queer perspective or a... Um, yeah, or a Tasmanian Aboriginal perspective as well. It's not my place to tell certain people's stories. So identity politics does come into it, but you, Lucy says of herself at one stage, the only difference between her and Jem is that she, Lucy, spent years steeped like a tea bag in a postmodernist and post-structuralist education until her strength of conviction was soaked from her because she learnt that nothing means anything anyway which sounds like a, a condemnation of all things identity politics. Yeah, but then she steps, she goes one step further than the next line is, um, except it does, doesn't it? And that's the problem with everything. Um, and I think 
there is that question that that postmodernism um, and poststructuralism and that um, that yeah the relationship between identity politics and um, culture and, and theory have where there is this sense of we can actually change meaning and and we need to actually think through how meaning operates. That doesn't mean things don't mean anything. It means that we need to think it through critically and actually we can evolve that meaning in positive ways. So it's about thinking about the fact that meaning isn't fixed, but that doesn't mean meaning doesn't exist. What that means is meaning is what it is, but it can change and it's open to change. And Lucy is actively trying to change what things mean, what her body means, what her understanding of her gender means, what the octopuses mean for her. So it's, a, it's in some regards, it's a, that was a nod to um, the theory that underpins the novel, but also a nod to this idea that the novel itself is about a progression of meaning, but that progression only happens when, when things first become murky. Is this a theme that you're going to take on in your, your next book, which I believe you're working on? Um, Possibly, to a degree, although the next novel at the moment is in such a mess. Actually, yeah, so yeah, nothing means anything at all in the, in the next novel, simply because it um, needs a significant structural edit before it has any shape again, because it, it's in a process of, um, well, yeah, it's in a process of metamorphosis. Erin yeah. Hortle, thank you very much indeed for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me, And Annie. congratulations on the book. It's a wonderful story. Thank you. The Tamer Valley Writers' Festival podcast series is sponsored by Events Tasmania, M Visuals and the award-winning Turner Steelhouse Distillery at Grindelwald, home of Three Cuts Gin, the perfect accompaniment to a night of reading. For more information on any books mentioned in this program, please visit Petrarch's, Launceston's major bookshop and a wonderful supporter of the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival.